welcome to episode 191 of Speaking of Mysteries. I'm Dancy Clare, and today's guest on the podcast is Cara Black, whose Three Hours in Paris was just published. Welcome, Cara. Hi, Nancy. Thanks for having me back. So happy pub day plus one for three hours in Paris. Uh, yesterday was your pub day. Exactly. Yeah, and it's a very strange time to be having a book. As we all know, um, you know, book tours are canceled. The bookstores are, you know, hanging in there. And um, everything's online now, right? Uh, virtual. So- well, you anticipated my first question. Um, you know, before we actually dive into your new book, which should be noted as a standalone thriller, not part of the Amy LaDuke series, we have to talk about the challenges of launching a book in the time of pandemic. I mean, it's hard enough to get a book out in front of readers in the best of times. So what are you doing? Totally. Yeah, it's a real challenge. Um, You know, um, I love to tour because um, I love to go and meet people in the bookstore and talk to readers. And I've been doing it for 20 years. It it makes me feel old. But we have, you know, this it's it's the personal contact, right? Talking to people and talking to bookstores, going to support them. And not being able to do that, it's, you know, it's like, how do we get the word out there? And I, you know, I'm in the, the same, uh, same predicament as so many people who have new releases in the beginning of April. So many of us are like, what do we do? So I saw uh, Don Winslow. I'm not comparing myself to Don, but he did a, a big virtual tour. Uh, and by big, I mean, he did a few selected events, you know, being interviewed by Lee Child or, or people like that. And it was like, yeah, I guess that's what we do now. You know, we just go online. We have Zoom meetings like we're doing or, um, you know, and uh, we just hope that people are tuning in. So, you know, that, that's what it's all about. It's a challenge. And um, I, you know, I love my publisher, Soho Press, and they put so much behind this book, you know, because it's my first standalone first ever standalone after uh, 19 books in the Paris series. And so I just, I just want to do everything I can to help get the word out and support other authors who are also, you know, we're all just uh, trying to tell people about our books and, and hope, you know, also I, I am positive because so many people say, well, now I get to read, you know, <laughs> <laughs> and it's true. If you're not homeschooling, <laughs> Well, I did notice that you do have the virtual tour uh, that's associated with different bookstores, and uh, I would encourage our listeners to please support your independent bookstore and uh, participate in these virtual book signings and order your books. So that's, uh, our, that's our message to everyone listening. You make a very good point. It's a great time to read. I find that I'm, I mean, I have to read a lot for the podcast, but I'm reading uh, even more and buying as many books as I can. You know, there are ways to get books in your hands and support local bookstores. Uh, Romans down here, Book Passage up in your neck of the woods. Uh, there's a lot of them. Yeah, in Book Passage, we're doing, um, started this thing called Extended Sessions. And of course, it was kicked off by Anne Lamont, you know, a mega star. Yeah. Uh, the next- the next one was by uh, Isabella Allende, I mean, a global star. And, um, and I'm doing one with my editor, Juliet, 
uh, on Saturday. And uh, so it's really interesting, you know, talking with Elaine who and Bill who run the run the bookstore for years, and they're like saying, "How can we? How can we? You know, we're such a community-based, you know, bookstore. How can we get people to, you know, again shop and hear and hear about books and, and do virtual book groups?" So, to to get into your book, though, um, I I personally been very, very interested in the contributions of women in World War II specifically. And it, but it seems as though it's a constant struggle to bring those contributions to light. Um, so yeah, we know about the women who worked at Bletchley, uh, but it's as if the powers that be pointed those English code breakers as wonderful as they, as they were and say, see, we're paying attention to what women did. While at the same time, women across Europe were stepping up in World War II. Uh, for example, uh, there's Virginia Hall, an American who worked for the British Secret Service's spine for the Allies in France. So I was wondering if that was part of what was in the soup that created uh, Three Hours. That's a great observation, Nancy. It's true. Um, yeah, I mean, women... And thank you for pointing that out because it's always the men and not that Alan Turing shouldn't, uh, you know, get his due, um, but in the women who were code breakers, but there's so many other areas. Um, I was also thinking of um, the uh, female snipers because it, in every book on World War II, the men, you know, were always being the agents or the snipers. And I found out about this um, uh, brigade, uh, a regiment of female snipers trained in Russia, you know, Russian women who were trained and were used because, you know, of course, um, they needed people, they needed women in the factories, they needed them on the, you know, on the, on the battlefield, they, they had pilots, um, female pilots. So these female snipers were pretty amazing. One of them, Ludmilla, and her last name starts with a P, um, got the record for the most kills, 309, uh, during World War II, as far as I know. Um, I don't know if anyone else has even topped that, male or female. She um, came to the United States on a tour and met Eleanor Roosevelt at the White House. Uh, so it was, you know, really interesting that this woman, I thought, well, if she can't, why can't we have an American female sniper, right? <laughs> Right, which is a perfect segue. People will think you can see my questions. This is a perfect segue to the story of Kate Lees, who is your protagonist. And so uh, tell us about her. She's not a Russian, uh, but uh, she's an American. And, but it's a, she has a really interesting backstory. Yeah, Kate Lees is from Oregon. And um, she uh, grew up during the Depression, she was the daughter of a migrant ranch foreman and uh, had five brothers. So that would probably prepare you for anything, right? And <laughs> If it doesn't kill you. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and so she grew up on this farm, their ranch. And again, this was during the Depression. My mother lived during the Depression. I've always heard stories. But if you can imagine, you know, rural, backwoods, Oregon. Um, and uh, when I began writing her, I kept thinking, oh, she's from my, uh, Montana or Wyoming. And, you know, and it just wasn't working. And I was like, of course, I've never even been to Montana or Wyoming. But I, you know, I was on 
book tour in Oregon. I've gone up there often. It's, you know, just, you know, five hours away from where I live. And um, when I was on my book tour, I was talking to my friend Maureen, who uh, works at the Historical Society, and she goes, "Look at some, come over and look at some of the archives about this valley. She's from Ashland, around Ashland. I'm sorry, I don't remember the name of that whole area, but it's where uh, they came in literally in covered wagons, the ancestors, and, you know, uh, pioneered the land. And so many of the people that lived there and gave their oral histories talked about it. And again, they would be living there during the depression and what it was like. And man, that was tough. I mean, you know, it's tough to have a ranch or a farm anyway, but when you think about in the thirties and you'd have, you'd have the cattle, you know, the herd, and then the fence in the far field would, you know, be broken, would be torn, and it could be a snowstorm. And I heard straight, you know, snow, you have to get out there and close that tear in the fence, right? Or you lose the herd. And, uh, and also, if you were sick or you had a fever of 102, and it was in the morning, you still had to feed the animals. The animals came first. All these stories. And so I thought, you know, that, that really makes you resilient. That if you have to come through, it's that make do and mend mentality you had in Britain during the war. But you've got to go there and fix it. When that tractor tire blows out and you've got to pull, you know, a huge bale of hay or something, right? You've got to make it work. And that's the kind of woman she would be. You know, she would be a descendant of frontier pioneer women. And, uh, you know, not that everything is easy, but but she has that resilience that she would go in there and, and make it work. And so, oh, and she would also, of course, growing up on a ranch, learn to shoot, you know, when she, as soon as she could, because her brothers and her, they had to protect the ranch, the herd from feral animals. There were wolves and um, they were still shooting wolves for bounty until ooh, the late 40s, I believe. And, uh, and then also, you know, shoot, you know, hunt for food that they would eat. So these were hard times. And um, so that's where Kate came from. And then I thought, well, five brothers, boy, her mother had passed away in childbirth, right? How would she get that, you know, uh, learning about women and, you know, being around other women? So her mother's sister, uh, ran a uh, rooming house in those days and then in one of the bigger Oregon towns. So Kate would get to go one month every summer and stay with her aunt and have with girl time, whatever that would be in, when she grew up. And in her aunt's uh, rooming house was a French woman who was a war bride from the First World War who lived there and uh, gave, you know, French lessons. Of course, she was much older, but Kate was transfixed. Here was a woman who wore lipstick. <laughs> little cups of cough, strong coffee, you know, who had this French exotic accent and just became, you know, entranced and started to learn French and you know, would go back and learn on the ranch. So that's kind of her, her, um, you know, entree into this. And then, you know, studying by herself, getting a scholarship and, and getting a, you know, scholarship to France in 1938, which was possible. That was a year before, you know, the war started in 39 in Europe and uh, there she was, and uh, big, and she's a big bone girl, you know, a big bone gal. And I wanted her to kind of be the every woman because she falls in love uh, with a Welsh man. They go 
back to the UK and she lived in Wales with her prissy in-laws. They had a baby and then the war started and he was sent up to Orkney Island in the islands in Scotland. And so she's, to me, like this every woman who, who's a sister, a mother, a wife, a daughter, and put in this, you know, kind of extraordinary circumstance of wartime, which everybody was, and her big skill, her, her special skill was shooting. You know, she was a rifle woman. But for her, it was no, uh, she didn't regard this as anything special because she grew up doing it. Well, one of the things I thought was very, very refreshing about this is uh, in a lot of fiction, uh, the, the people who become spies, including women, because um, I'm thinking of James Ben's series, Billy Boyle series, um, are often, uh, you know, higher class or, or uh, members of the aristocracy, mostly because they speak French and or, and or German, you know, because they've had that sort of worldly upbringing. So I thought having a, a, a young woman, and she is fairly young, from Oregon, of all places, was inspired. Honest to God, I did, because that's more than a world away in 1939 Paris, 1938 Paris. Thank you. Yeah, because, you know, for Kate, living, you know, again, in this hard life on the ranch and spending this time with her aunt, it was this amazing world that opened up to her, right? Through this older, you can, I could just see this, you know, French war bride who'd be in her, you know, 50s or 60s and talking about Paris and, you know, showing, saying, you know, this is how you put on lipstick. And for her, it was girl stuff and France and exotic and how do you dress? And, and, you know, I mean, Kate had like one dress and that was the dress she ever wore to funerals. Do you know what I mean? It's, mm-hmm. it's a different time, but she was smart. She was, you know, she was motivated to learn. She won the scholarship. So thank you for bringing it out. Yeah. I mean, I really wanted like an every woman who again was not petite and, you know, a fashion plate to, to get out there. And um, as, as she's recruited by the British, when they, you know, um, then they, they're like, how do we send this big, large lady into France? She's going to stick out, you know, like a mile. And, uh, and that was a great, uh, a great challenge because not everyone, you know, was, you know, looks like a fashion plate. And like Virginia Hall, that story you mentioned, I love that book. She was an older woman. She had a, a, a prosthesis, right? She had, she had, yeah, she had a fake leg. Yeah. Like, I mean, it doesn't how, stand out. <laughs> how could you, you know, it's about pulling it off. I think a lot of what you do, and as women, I think we know that. I'm not saying men don't either. It's how you pull it off, right? It's how you act. It's kind of like you walk in with an attitude or, you know, and you, you can do it. Um, so, you know, that's kind of getting a confidence in yourself or assuming a role or uh, uh, being... Uh, one of the tricks that Kate was taught, you know, by this Shakespearean actor in this weekend, quick weekend spy course was, you know, all different techniques of makeup, you know, just simple things, you know, change one thing and, and you will look different. And also, you know, a piece of soot under your, you know, it would make you look older. And he said, you'll be invisible. They never look at older women, right? So, <laughs> so Thanks for, the, thanks for the reminder. Uh, well, I'm not you, not you. I'm just saying, but you know, there's interesting things that, that, you know, 
we take for granted. You know, it's just about in a really good spy. I started reading lots of spy novels, uh, spy um, uh, uh, I want to say people wrote about their career in the Secret Memoirs. Service. Thank you. Thank you. And, you know, how do you be a good spy? And it's not James Bond and flashy. It's the ones you never think of who are the most successful, who have the longest careers. It's someone you don't notice, right? That's, right. that's the one, you know. So As, I'm just... Sorry, just like the character you played in my last book. Oh yeah, well we're gonna we're gonna get to that. <laughs> I I read I read an e galley of of the book, uh, and it, it it's such a it's a wonderful read. But the one thing it didn't do was reproduce the map very well. Sorry, really. Well, I you know I went to the Google, but um, Kate really gets around Paris, uh, which is one of your uh, areas of expertise. And I know that you know Paris just about better than anyone, maybe even better than a cab driver. But what did you have to do to navigate the Paris of 70 years ago? Because I wasn't there 70 years ago, but it just seems spot on. It was really uh, a visceral descriptions. Thank you. Well, first off, if you do see the map in the book, it's a gorgeous map. It is authentically 1940. We found one. And... On it are the different spots where Kate goes, and also Gunter, the other uh, other point of view in the story, um, where she goes, and you know, starting with Sacre Coeur and and down through the fabric market and the old corset shop. Those um, places are still there. The old the corset shop, Clavery, is still there. You can see it when you're on the bus. Um, it has this incredible uh, Belle Epoque uh, storefront. It doesn't sell corsets anymore, but um, but these places are there. I mean. I, over the, again, it's been 20 years that I've gone to France, and, but every time uh, I, I realized that I could use these spots. So I have, I have gone Kate's route that she takes in the story. I have walked it. I have biked many parts of it. I've gone where Gunter goes. Uh, you know, uh, well, he had a, yeah, a Mercedes, but, but no, I have walked or um, taken the bus where Gunter goes, and I have walked and ridden everywhere that, that happens in the story, because geographically, most of the buildings are still there. I mean, different, you know, they have different purposes. Uh, that Some of the street, a few of the street names have changed, but, you know, I walked it all out, I wrote it, so I, I know it can be done, um, and that's what I love, you know, because it was like when I was in the Jardin de Luxembourg, I mean, I've been many times, and, uh, you know, there's a wonderful bench by the, by the Marie de Medici fountain, and there's the water, and, and then the children are playing on the other side. There's a big pond where they push those little boats with sticks. And I was sitting there, and it's, as I've done many times, and many people have, and then I was thinking, I kind of got into another zone and I was thinking, what was this like in 1940, you know? And I was, I could feel the rustle of the trees, you know, I hear the gravel as people crunched on it, the, the sound of children, the, the smell, you know, of, of whatever was blooming. And, you know, it was like, I was in 1940, but I happened to be in <laughs> 2019 last year. Do you know what I mean? It's so, so there's some timeless parts that really can can go. It was it was the same then. So I could use that in the scene, and use that sensory detail and really feel. This wouldn't have changed, right? You know, of course right. we we get this feeling in Paris in so many places. But um, 
So that's what I loved. And I, of course, I have maps. I like the map in our book, but I had German maps of the occupation, you know, that the German military put out for their troops, you know, where the bordellos were, because there were authorized bordellos, only certain ones the soldiers could go to, and they were marked. And then there were uh, clinics where you would go after you would <laughs> go to the bordello. After you went to the bordello. <laughs> it's all there, very German, very, you know, very... Very precise. efficient. Yeah. Then there was the Soldaten Kino, which is a, a movie theaters that they took over for German soldiers. So big, the big theaters, like the Rex, it was, you know, for the Germans. The big, um, some of the big uh, restaurants, they became like cafeterias for the German soldiers. So, you know, they were, they moved in and they had their movie theaters and the restaurants, the bordellos, the, you know, handed them uh, uh, special little books about what to see in the museums, where to go for this and that. I mean, and when you find those, it's amazing because Hitler actually used Paris as a, you know, kind of R&R spot for his troops. Well, let's talk about Gunther Hoffmann, who is the, the German, it's Kate's nemesis. <clears throat> He's the German who's hunting her. Uh, mm -hmm. He was a homicide detective in Munich before his department was folded into the SS security. So he sort of didn't come to it uh, via the Nazi party. That doesn't necessarily mean he's a good guy because he's very chilling, but in a way he's sympathetic. And I thought that must have been a very fine line writing wise to do. Yeah. Well, well, thank you. Yeah. I, um, it was really important to me that Gunter was not going to be a cliche, you know, a, you know, typical Nazi trope. He would have, you know, be that caricature, um, he would have dimension. And I thought he needed to reflect the moral complexity of what people did during the war. Because, you know, good people can do bad things. And I saw Gunther as uh, he grew up in during the Weimar Republic, you know, during that after World War I, uh, which, you know, is now on that Babylon Berlin. Yes. I, yeah. And so he grew up in this crazy time when, you know, there was uh, no, no order. Or there was uh, the terrible inflation, uh, you know, and he, his mother uh, dropped him off on the doorstep of his uncle because, and he never knew his father. And his uncle, at least, was a policeman in Munich. And his uncle gave him, you know, a lunch pail with food in it, sent him to school and a coat on his back, which was more than many people had. And he loved, you know, the structure and um, the, you know, that his uncle gave him the security that, and his uncle had, this is how I saw Gunter anyway, that, you know, his uncle spent time, you know, this is what happens, you know, and he saw his uncle being a good policeman doing the job of, you know, protecting people, getting evidence, going to court, um, you know, there's a method and you need your proof and you had a, the code, I think, and I'll, I don't know, I'm just saying this, but I think all policemen have a code. They believe they're doing a good job and they have to follow the rules and they want to do that to protect people. And I'm sure there were good policemen in Germany and, you know, but they were also the, the Nazi tools, the tools of the Nazis, because that's the time it was. So I think when Gunther, who was a very good homicide detective in Munich, you know, all during this time, right, of National Socialism from 1933 on. He didn't like it, and especially 
his nemesis in the book is, you know, the vet um, who we meet, Rashman, mm-hmm. who, um, you know, is that thug, that brown shirt, that kind of, you know, uh, very ambitious, wants to get ahead. And, you know, there's those types, whereas Gunter is really trying to be a good policeman. You know, he did not particularly want this job. He wanted to go home to the chocolate birthday cake his wife was making and his daughter's uh, second birthday. You know, he, you know, he was like, how often did his daughter turn two years old? And he had the stiff teddy bear as a present ready to bring her. And then he's called away to a job that he personally didn't want to do. But if he didn't, you know, there was this threat to his family. So he had his own, what I want to say, he was under threat as well. I mean, he had to perform. He did not have a lot of choice. He's thinking of his family. Um, and I really, and all throughout the story, he's carrying this, this stiff teddy bear because he keeps thinking he's going to find an attempted assassin uh, and, and get to go home and, you know, have the belated birthday party. Uh, and that, so I, yeah. that kind of brings up uh, this idea, because I don't want to give away too much of the book because it would really spoil the story, but the, the, the Secret Services, uh, and we probably know more about the British Secret Service for a number of reasons, was really kind of heartless. I mean, they, they had to be heartless. They had to sacrifice people and put people up as uh, diversions in order to get other things done with, with the full knowledge that these humans that were acting as diversions might not come back. Right, they were fodder. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's you know Section D, which is the uh, British section that recruits Kate, was a real um, Secret Service uh, agency. It was um, unsanctioned. I mean, it was sanctioned by uh, Churchill, but it was every action was deniable of its uh, of its members. And it became later, early, we're talking 19, I think it started in 1939. It was, a, it was, there was a need when, when the British, certain people in the British government and military knew that the Germans in Europe were, were arming and many of the old school, the, you know, the old boy network, you know, that's not, that's not cricket. And, you know, we don't do that, but some smart people saw that on the wall writing in the wall, and it was like, we need to get some stuff going. So they started developing uh, what, you know, kind of um, Q does for James Bond, but these techniques, uh, these sabotage tools to go in. And uh, the British military were against going into sovereign states in Europe to do sabotage, but, um, but that's what Section D did. They were under the radar. They were... Um, to a bunch of misfits, a bunch of people who did not belong in the old school network or had gone to Eton or Oxford. They took people who thought outside the box, who were inventors, who um, one of the, several of these men came up with these uh, limpet mines, um, you know, with their children's, uh, the adhesive from their, their children's little candies. It's, so it's people that kind of in wartime which I think in the time of Corona, people are using uh, warehouses to try maybe, you know, do make ventilators or masks or, you know, that's, that's kind of what people do in a time of crisis. And at least we hope they do. So these, these things were going on and Section D was started 
it was definitely, I got a lot of uh, gaff from the regular military. Yet uh, Churchill, who just became prime minister in May, we're talking 1940, he, I mean, he was new. And they, we had the fiasco at Dunkirk. I mean, how, he needed a win, right? He had just come from Neville Chamberlain, all the thing of appeasement, and yet he, the war was looming. I mean, France had just been invaded by Germany. He needed a win. So there was Section D, which later became uh, the SOE, the Special Operations Executive, which we hear, you know, there's a lot more stories coming out about that. But the Section D were just kind of mavericks, uh, cowgirls like Kate, <laughs> you know, had special skills and would go and do ungentlemanly warfare in Europe. And it was all deniable. I mean, if they were caught, they had, you know, that was, that was it. So you mentioned this earlier in, in our conversation. You've written 19 Amy Leduc mysteries in your uh, Paris arrondissement-specific series. And I was wondering, how did she react to you writing about a different <laughs> character? Was she okay with it? <laughs> well, that's great. Um, well, actually, I have to say, my editor said to me when I was writing Kate, how does Amy feel about this? And um, uh, does she think you're being unfaithful? <laughs> and I said, well, you know, when I did start writing and Kate came to me much more stronger, you know, after, you know, feeling this Oregon roots for her, I was like, yes, it's like an affair, you know, um, we're having an affair. And then it was like, no, you know what? I'm, I'm, it's different because I'm going back to Amy Duke and I'm working on that next one now. But this is just a, you know, a, a different experience. It's not being, un, you know, unfaithful to Amy or not having an affair. You're just going back in time because I love, um, I, I'm kind of obsessed with that time, you know, World War II and that whole era. And every time I'm in Paris and I see bullet holes on, you know, a building, there was some German graffiti underneath in the tunnels under Jardin de Luxembourg where the Germans uh, had shelters. I mean, that's there. That's a recent past. And I always want to explore that because I know there's so many stories about that time. Stories I heard, you know, in the 20 years I've been writing the Amy Le Duc. I'd be in Paris and I'd, you know, meet a policeman and we'd hang out and talk. And, and he'd tell me about his old boss to... There was a policeman during, you know, the war, and, and there were these incredible stories. I have notebooks filled with incredible details and, and vignettes and things people told me, a phrase or something I saw, and they just did not go in the Emile Duc books. Um, and so they, they needed to come out, you know, in their own story, which is what, you know, Three Hours in Paris became. So you, you answered part of my question uh, about what's next. I was wondering uh, if there's going to be another crime fiction novel set in Kate Reese's world, uh, as well as what's next for Amy. And is that mousy CIA agent who appeared in Murder in Bel Air? Um, oh God, what was her name? Uh, could Nancy she be coming Claire? back? <laughs> Nancy Claire? Uh Claire, yeah. Um, I don't know. That's a good question. Um, I don't because Nancy is CIA, we know, and uh, very good, very good at what she does. Um, I don't know if we need her in the next story, but that's, it's not finished, so we don't know. Um, but I am working on the next Amy Le Duc and um, trying to finish 
trying to finish this in, in this, this time. And I'm thinking, I don't know about Kate Reese. You know, people have been asking me. I, I don't know. I don't know, Nancy. I have been thinking about a, a post-war story about right after World War, you know, at liberation when, um, because in the Amy LeDuc books, and we've met Amy's grandfather, Claude, uh, especially in Murder on the Cave, you know, her grandfather who bought that incredible apartment in Ile Saint-Louis for the family, who is a bon vivant, who loves wine, you know, who loves to go to the auction houses, he loves to cook, he has a mistress, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and Amy's always never wanted to know about the mistress. Amy's father was always you know, pretending she didn't exist. So um, I've always thought, what, what is the story? You know, what is the story of Claude's mistress? What's a, you know, this woman who, uh, who Amy, you know, never wanted to know about. Who is this mistress? What happened to her? What's her story? How did they meet? So that's kind of, you know, and I was thinking, well, they would have met. Maybe liberation. I don't know. Um, uh, well, I'm it also sure. means that your universes can clash. Definitely. And you know, in, in Jim Ben's uh, last book, the, the story about liberation, uh, Billy does get to hang out with Claude in the resistance, Amy's grandfather. So <laughs> it's, it's kind of amazing. Uh, Jim said, I have this idea, you know, because what, it, what was Claude, Amy's grandfather, who later joined the Surete and then uh, started the Duke Detective, what was he doing in liberation? And I said, well, he was very active. You know, he was much younger. And so we have Billy and Claude doing some things in that book. Uh, so, so, yeah, it's kind of amazing how you can merge the worlds. Well, it gives us something to look forward to. Whatever you've got coming up next, boy, I can't wait. Oh, thank you, Nancy. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, I think uh, these sort of podcasts, I don't want to... Uh, put any laurels that the podcast doesn't deserve on it, except I think it's, it's just a great thing for people that are interested in the genre and want to hear about books that are coming out. So I appreciate your time uh, in coming and talking about um, three hours in Paris. Thank you. Thank you, Nancy. Wonderful to be here.